Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdell. There are solutions. Some of the solutions you mentioned, some of this, anything that's existed in the world to this stage. You know, if you're talking about carbon capture as a service, carbon capture to the enterprise, decarbonization to the enterprise, there's no model of what decarbonization as a service procurement looks like, you know, within the enterprise. These are bottlenecks for scale, and it's going to be really interesting to see how I think a lot of these young companies move beyond the early adopters and package their products, you know, for the mainstream. All right, Dan, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. So I always like to start or frequently like to start by just inviting guests to kind of walk folks listening in through their climate story and in your case, how you came to be an investor in climate tech. Um, Awesome. My career story, I started as a software engineer on Wall Street working on bond trading desks and doing quantitative things, which uh, led to career trading and putting together deals and managing risk on the mortgage-backed securities desk, basically like in the middle of the great financial crisis, which was an interesting place to be. And I spent several years there before, you know, moving from New York to Southern California and started exploring ideas about social and climate impact through entrepreneurship and investing. And I was lucky to have some experiences, you know, some successes in that area that sort of gave me what I needed to make a switch into following my passions, specifically in climate impact, full time. So I've been kind of building and investing under the name Keiki Capital since 2016 or so. And yeah, I think like for a number of years, you know, developing a network and kind of a you know, a unique point of view. I really wanted to, I think like my early involvement was exploration. Yeah, does capitalism solve this problem? And sort of trying to test the idea that by aligning incentives, companies or entrepreneurs or founders or capitalism itself can, you know, kind of align and, you know, the greed that got us into this situation or the forces that got us into this situation, you know, are also like kind of the drivers for getting us out. Really interested in testing those ideas. And I think that's the point of view that gave me the impetus to launch the fund, which really came together in 2020 and launched in early 2021 as a way to kind of take those ideas to the next level. Awesome. Yeah, I like the the idea of kind of the fund and investment approach as a way to continuously refine your own thesis by meeting a lot of people, working more closely with some of them who are working on compelling businesses. And it was interesting that you noted that part of the fund formation was also driven kind of by that unique perspective that you were able to arrive at. Can you talk us through a little bit more of kind of what that perspective or framework is and how it informs your investing so far? Yeah. So I'm interested in how we can accelerate the flow of capital. We need $100 trillion to flow into climate solutions over the next decade and a half to meet our climate goals. And we're allocating, like the world is allocating a fraction of what's needed today mm-hmm. to climate solutions. So I'm particularly interested in, you know, I think like companies, I think the question broadly, how do we align interests more with, with capital and climate solutions? And in companies that are creating that alignment or that are directly helping like 
climate fintech companies that are, you know, erasing frictions or creating connections for capital to flow directly into like the climate solutions ecosystem. Right on. And what are some examples? Things like climate risk and insurance markets and, you know, kind of all fit into, yeah, all fit into that kind of umbrella. Got it. Yeah, I was about to go in that direction and dig in on some examples, whether or not, you know, they're in their portfolio of ways, companies that are kind of facilitating that type of work. Yeah, absolutely. So you've had on your show a couple like uh, Carbon Collective and uh, Enduring Planet. Carbon Collective, Zach came on and, and talked about their retail climate forward investing thesis. And Dimitri came on and, and talked about uh, Enduring Planet and kind of alt finance and the different capital requirements that entrepreneurs in climate have and, and how to solve them. So those are dipping uh, back into you know the Keep Cool uh, library. <laughs> Those are some examples who are portfolio companies. And yeah, we've made, you know, kind of a couple of investments in insurance and, you know, looking at uh, the three legs of the fund are decarbonization, adaptation and, and climate fintech. And so there's there's overlaps, you know, there as well. I think on the adaptation side, that's almost like a, a harder question or it's a question that's less, that's asked less frequently. You know, there's kind of a lot of, you know, decarbonization, a lot of movement into how to get money into decarbonization, maybe a little less attention on how to get money into, you know, flood resilience or to help homeowners who have been affected or to adjust life to kind of what is a changing planet. Yeah, those are three really, really strong pillars. And you're right. I, I definitely, I mean, even kind of the roster of guests that have come on this season of the Keep Cool show, it's kind of representative of the fact that there's a lot of work being done in climate fintech as is important. You know, as you mentioned, Enduring Planet is a great example of kind of all of the different investment for private companies beyond venture capital. Carbon Collective is a great example of what can be done in public markets, even on a consumer side to move money from fossil fuels towards climate solutions, or at least climate neutral investments. And then I also had a fellow Owen Wolcock on from kind of more of like a real estate focus on shifting or encouraging a shift of capital from markets that might not be well adapted or won't be resilient to climate change to ones that will be. And that has some kind of elements of that adaptation play, but you're right. We don't necessarily always see as much conversation, even on my show, with folks that are thinking about or people that aren't don't have enough money to move or aren't going to be able to relocate. You know, what is adapting to a changing climate look like, whether it's something as basic as better air conditioning, which also overlaps with decarbonization or, yeah, like retrofitting entire cities. Are there some interesting companies that you've, or kind of what have you learned in digging deeper into that adaptation vertical? I'd love to talk about all three over the course of the podcast, but since we're on that note, I'd be curious to hear more about that. I'm an investor in in StormSensor, which is a company that uh, makes IoT sensors and sells them to cities under like kind of a hardware as a service, software as a service model to measure what's going on in stormwater systems. Um, You know, these are forms of infrastructure that, you know, a lot of times were built 100 years ago or or more and aren't actually well understood. And so kind of the findings that they have is, you know, cities know they have a problem. There's, you know, when it rains, there's flooding and so forth. They don't even know like sort of what direction the water is moving through their system. And certainly not moving all the time in the direction that they expect it to. So, you know, more frequent, more intense storm events and sea level rise are kind of making these systems behave, you know, increasingly 
unpredictably. So Storm Sensor is a company that, that helps municipalities figure that out. That's a, that's a good example even in and of itself because it speaks to people think about global warming kind of as like a heat question, but there's so much that happens in the complex system that is climate around greater potential for heavier rains and floods as mean temperatures across the world rise. And yeah, even just the beginning step of being able to be more aware or model or predict what that's going to look like. Uh, yeah, that certainly has massive adaptation implications and as usual flows into as we talked about, kind of some of the climate fintech too on the insurance side for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's risk and perceptions of risk are you know are important for anybody making a, a decision, whether it's financial or or otherwise. And right, so I think like climate risk in markets, like whether it's insurance or housing or the climate solutions index performs against the fossil fuel index, is kind of one way that plays out. And then another way is you know how we kind of actually take care of our physical assets. Right. Backtracking a little bit, because some of the other folks that I've had on from the investor side, I mean, Dimitri's early in kind of the life of the Endurant Planet Fund too, but from your perspective, I'd be interesting to hear you talk about everything that actually goes into kind of like the fund formation and raising that first fund, because that's a perspective that I feel like I haven't had anyone talk about on the show yet. I think the important thing is, you know, around like kind of, you know, forming a fund and asking people, right, to, to trust you with their funds, whether they're, you know, individuals or families or, or institutions or what. It's kind of like, what's the reason for this fund to exist? And the most important thing in terms of convincing other people of your vision uh, or of a vision and, and, and backing a fund, you know, a first-time fund or an emerging manager's fund, is that that reason is really strong. And yeah, I think for me, I brought an experience from my work in Wall Street and, you know, kind of a theory of change and a reputation for being, you know, a steward of capital that allowed me to, you know, kind of make that case to my LPs who are mostly, you know, mostly individuals and families. I think that's the number one thing is it's, you know, kind of like having that conviction yourself and and being able to kind of, you know, share that vision or, or share the reason that this fund needs to exist. And the fund landscape itself is getting bigger. Um, I think it changes, right? When I was thinking about the fund that had to exist in, in January 2020, you know, sort of the niches were different than they are now. And yeah, so I think, you know, the challenge is like kind of being able to have a view of what's going on in the market and, and how that's changing and adjust if necessary, or just kind of lean into strengths. Right. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions too, is, you know, even in kind of the shorter time span that you've been allocating capital, like what has changed and what have you learned over that time span? I mean, it's so interesting how I think like the political cycle has played out over the last, you know, couple of years. I mean, frankly, like something like the timing of my interest in of getting into climate as a business, you know, was, was 2016. And, you know, it was kind of, timed with, you know, kind of the understanding that like the government was not going to solve our problems or wasn't going to be aligned or wasn't going to come through with solutions. And climate tech, by any measure, growth of renewables or, you know, founding of great companies did fantastically well between 2016 and 2020. Like our markets responded to, you know, the perception that something was going to get done by the Biden administration um, in 2020 
and that's kind of gone up and down. And of course, we're you know everybody <laughs> is kind of is psyched about where we're at today. Um, but we've gone through like yeah the hills and the troughs. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think like what is going to cause climate tech companies to be successful is creating alignment with their customers. It's creating value for their customers, putting profit in the hands of partners that are not aligned, that don't care about climate impact or decarbonization outright, but are going to act because it's in their you know interests to do so. And so, yeah, I think I sort of tried to stay focused on that idea through kind of like the peaks and valleys. And, you know, obviously, like, who knows how much of the capital that's flowed in is kind of based on the idea or perception that, you know, there's going to be a lot of government money to chase versus, you know, that there's like a great new set of business models creating new kinds of alignment. But I think the next phase is certainly a ton more private capital coming into the space attracted by the policy world. And, you know, I think probably a lot of allocators were sort of saying, you know, we need to wait and like, we don't believe that, that there will be real real government incentives or real funds, or that this is aligned with policy that are going to kind of be forced to change their decisions. So the first podcast I'm recording where we have final clarity on the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. will pass. So it's only, I guess, 30 to 40 basis points of the $100 trillion figure you quoted earlier, but it's a, a step in the right direction. And yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how, whether and how that shifts the funding climate for climate tech startups or, you know, accelerates the strong momentum that already exists or whether, you know, I'm sure it has all kinds of other unforeseen trickle down effects. And that'll be really interesting to watch over the next six months, two years, six years even. But yeah, I resonate with what you said about regardless of what's happening in that policy landscape. Like, obviously, it's important that those tailwinds also kind of buoy private markets, but there's a lot of work that one can kind of do independently to try to flow capital to great solutions, regardless of who's president and regardless of what different countries across the whole world are doing, because a lot of that is super asynchronous as well. And six weeks ago, I would have, well, I'll ask you the the question regardless, but six weeks ago, I feel like the answer might have been slightly different given what I just talked about. But what have you seen over the last six months in kind of private markets for climate technologies as public markets have taken a hit around things like inflation, stuff like that? Super interesting. I mean, private markets, you know, you kind of get your view. It's very difficult to, you know, you're like looking through a keyhole and, you know, you only get to see your part. And my keyhole certainly could be like very different from the keyhole that's like right next to me or 10 feet to the left or the right. I think from my perspective, what I've kind of observed is in climate, that things were kind of very business as usual for, you know, in terms of deals getting done and valuations and the availability of early stage capital for a lot longer. You know, we were certainly like reading about things getting much more difficult for seed and pre-seed raises in in kind of broader tech while we were going strong for several months. I think right, you know, right now it's the end of August. It feels a lot like a slow summer. I think deals are a little bit harder to bring together, you know, compared to the last few summers, which I think there was, you know, sort of no appreciable slowdown. It feels different. You know, I think that probably heading into the end of the year, I think a lot of investors come back to the table, come back from vacation and get deals done. But I think that the way that deals are getting done is certainly a little bit different than last year. I think like in 
pre-seed. I think last year, you know, it was it was fairly easy to like kind of tranche a pre-seed round and by say you're trying to raise a million dollars, raise two hundred K from one investor, raise two hundred K from another investor, talk to the third investor, tell them you've got, you know, a lot of momentum and raise another two hundred K from that investor. And I think today they're just they're kind of, you know, an invest, it's a lot harder to be, it's, I think it's harder for investors to, you know, kind of write the check. So, which is to say, like, I think last year, a lot of pre-seed rounds didn't really need a lead or somebody to act as a lead. This year, through my keyhole, a lot of investors are looking to see that most of a round is coming together before writing a check or before, you know, making a hard commitment. That's, you know, at least one kind of change in tone of the market that makes things harder for founders. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of a chicken or the egg when there's folks that are interested and, and circling and everyone's waiting for a lead to, to come out and, and take a stand, but <laughs> mm-hmm. everyone's waiting for each other and then people don't necessarily take that role. And going forward, looking ahead for your fund itself, I understand you're still allocating out of the first fund you raised, but how are you thinking about the timing for potentially raising a second fund? And how is that pitch potentially going to have matured from the first one that you uh, you gave to folks over the, the course of the last variety of years? I love what I'm doing. I love the founders, the entrepreneurs that I get to meet and work with. And I'd be thrilled to continue to do it, whether at a larger scale or a similar scale with a second fund. I think I set up something to prove something that that honestly has been proved many times by many people since the beginning of 2020, that there's a lot of investable opportunities in this sector. Uh, and I think also, um, especially around climate big tech and especially around solving the problems that we've talked about on this, you know, over the last half an hour. And I think I've been able to like sort of demonstrate that my portfolio is at the heart of what's kind of, you know, kind of interesting, um, um to me and around climate fintech. And I think, uh, yeah, you know, I'm excited to like kind of, continue to focus on those themes. Right. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be a major, a major sea change if par for the course is working well too. <laughs> and uh, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, we've talked about the fun side of things for a bit now. I'd love to hear about, you know, just a few more companies, again, whether inside or outside the portfolio that are doing really interesting work and that you're excited about. So a company that we've been fortunate to support since the very beginning of the fund, this is our first fund investment was in Canon Energy, led by Janice Tran, who is a uh, formerly ran, I want to say, renewable gas uh, at Generate Capital, and helped put that portfolio together before leaving to found Canon Energy. <laughs> uh, and so, they're a developer. I put them. They're a decarbonization business. Uh, to me, they're a climate fintech business, or they fit sort of my definition because. And the reason kind of I was excited about investing them. The reason they were you know, kind of investment number one, which, you know, in a lot of ways helped gather the momentum to, you know, have a first close for the fund and so forth, is the way that they align the incentives between planet and profit. Uh, They're, you know, approaching a dirty industrial, you know, industry player who, you know, let's just say doesn't care at all about their carbon footprint or the flavor of renewable energy. And they're saying, we will buy your waste heat with us. We're going to put, you know, a device on site that will enable us to, you know, buy your waste heat and pay you for it. The way that they're using the financial engineering to do that um, and to create that alignment is 
you know, is I think like kind of the crystallization of kind of like what we've been talking about in terms of how we win scaling climate solutions. Now, I mean, today it turns out that these companies do care or have to care or, um, and things like that. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because it's pretty similar to in the last step of most recent episode of Keep Cool Show. We had kind of a carbon capture technology come on and they also valorize kind of a different mechanism. They have an output from their carbon capture, potassium carbonate, which they're able to, to sell or turn into products, but they also remit some of the money that they make from that revenue stream to folks on the commercial heating side where they actually install the carbon capture technology to at the minimum pay back the cost of that investment. So that's something we've I've heard companies talk about in other fields, whether it's something like credits for methane reductions, paying farmers with cows to actually integrate kind of a, a feedstock additive for their cows that could reduce their methane emissions instead of just expecting them to do it because it's the right thing for the planet. I think that's, you know, that's a model that we'll see across a lot of different sectors in climate tech and hopefully proliferate well and, and far and wide. Absolutely. And then a question that I've been asking myself, this kind of zooming back out again is, you know, what comes after the IRA? And it doesn't necessarily have to be purely in the policy realm or the government realm, but like, what are some other potential tailwinds or even headwinds that you're keeping an eye on uh, as it might impact your work for the rest of the year? There are solutions. Some of the solutions you mentioned, some of the solutions I've mentioned, there are solutions that look nothing like anything that's existed in the world to this stage. You know, if you're talking about carbon capture as a service, carbon capture to the enterprise, decarbonization to the enterprise, there's no model of what decarbonization as a service procurement looks like, you know, within the enterprise. These are bottlenecks for scale, and it's going to be really interesting to see how I think a lot of these young companies move beyond the early adopters and package their products, you know, for the mainstream. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Part of me in the kind of also wonders whether there's a role for, and I'm not sure that this, I think, I suspect, or I hope even in many cases, this wouldn't be necessary, but a role for someone like a lender or an additional financing entity that can sit between models like that, if it's carbon capture to enterprise or carbon removal to farmers, like to grease the wheel sometimes and get around the bottleneck the first few times, like does someone else need to come in and say like, hey, we'll actually lend the money to the farmer to add the kind of methane emission reduction feedstock in the first case, if they're not willing to take that risk the first time, and like we can play this model out and we'll take on some of the risk and capture some of the upside, but eventually we can also get out of the way. I'm definitely a proponent of, yeah, asset financing for a lot of these distributed applications, whether it's, you know, kind of very small or capital light, you know, IoT types of solutions, you know, all the way up to, you know, kind of bigger project-sized bytes. We're backer of Pearl Street, uh, which is the service sort of enables companies to adopt hardware as a service uh, models and, and, you know, kind of build the model and, and find capital and things of that nature as well. Yeah, I think, and I think that's hugely impactful for the kind of financial engineering that it takes to create, you know, kind of these aligned business models. Right on, yeah. And uh, to close, I definitely want to also give the opportunity to you to for folks that are listening and, and might be interested in talking to you about funding for their startup or potentially becoming an LP, like who are the right profiles of folks that, that you want to hear from? You know, founders that are innovating on their business model and, and are passionate about climate and, you know, especially if they're you know passionate about removing hurdles to, uh, you know, getting more capital into climate, we should be talking and 
if this story you know resonates with anybody out there who would like to work together, invest together, look at deals together, I'm easy to find uh, out there. Right on. Brilliant. Thanks so much for being on, Dan. Yeah, thanks, Nick. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.